Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all good. This is episode number 11 of season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. In the left corner, we have Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks. Joey, how are you doing today? Good, guys. How are you going? And on the right-hand side of my screen, I can see Brian all the way from Melbourne. Brian, how are you doing today? G'day, guys. I'm really good. Thank you. Good, good, good. And my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome, everyone, to the show. This is going to be a, a good one, I think. I'm quite excited about it. So. My next project that I'm going to be building is a workbench and today I just wanted to have a chat to you guys about workbenches. I've never built a proper woodworking workbench and I've gone through a couple of videos. I love that chunky style, that real heavy top, but when it comes to the, the timber that you're going to make it out of, the accessories, all of that, um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty new to all of that. Um, so I'm, I'm just really interested to hear what you guys have to say. The first thing that I'm, um, I'm a little bit unsure about is the material. Everyone seems to use pine. Joey, I watched your video. I know that you've used pine on yep. your bench. Would you use pine again if you, if you <coughs> built a bench like that again? Um, I, don't, I wouldn't use pine for the top again. And I only used pine because of, it was budgetary. Um, I would probably use beech, something really hard. I know I can get that, and it's cheap as chips compared to any other hardwoods. And um, beech is harder than pine. Yeah, beech is crazy hard. It's I mean, what they use for making tool handles and plane bodies and things like that. Right, okay. Um, and uh, only because I'm, I'm, I get annoyed with little dings and dents happening so easily on the work surface. Now it's a workbench, granted. But I don't want like I can see my top surface wearing out, you know, after years. Mm. Um, I just it would be nicer to not have to worry about slipping with a hammer and putting a big crown mark in it, whereas it's not going to happen with with a hardwood um, top. The rest of it can be any any old rubbish as far as I'm concerned. Um, it doesn't really matter. But I, I was going to say um, maybe Brian, you could discuss as well, like. I, I, um, I, how do you use your benches that you have and would you like do you, do you think you need a big super like traditional workbench um, Robin is that what you're going for as well like are you going for like the something in the style something that, that I built lots of lots of um, vices and all that kind of guff well Brian before we get to you this was this is the plan so maybe you can tell me if I'm going down the wrong track I was only looking at 600 wide so, or 600 deep, that's it. And anywhere between 900 and 1200 wide. So a fairly small bench. Right. Yeah, my approach to workbenches is pretty utilitarian, to be honest. I batter them, I drop glue on them, I drop finish on them. I don't want something that's absolutely beautiful. And um, mm. I don't, if it were me, um, I would probably go for something a little bit wider. I'll talk you through what I've got in the workshop. So I've sort of got a couple of assembly tables which are just old secondhand desks with a leather top that are relatively flat and they're sort of good enough and I can do whatever I want with them. 
I've got a, a workbench that I built, which was the first thing I ever built with minimal tools. I think I had a jigsaw, a drill, and that was probably about it. And it was just a uh-huh. um, laminated pine uh, door panel um, purchased from Bunnings on a, um, I think it's pine. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a pine frame, but they're pretty substantial legs on it. So it's got a good bit of weight down low which mm. is really important with a workbench because the mm-hmm. other one that I've got that I purchased uh, from a tool uh, or a tool stockist that I won't name the brand, but um, <laughs> it's uh, quite a uh, heavy top on a light steel frame, like super mm. thin telescopic legs. Yeah. If you wiggle the bench, it moves. Yeah, it's not good. Um, so it's pretty rubbish. Um, it's got a couple of vices on it, but to be honest, the one that I use the most is a slightly higher Oregon workbench. Um, right. It stayed nice and flat at the top. If I was going to make another one, which I have been intending on doing for a while, I don't know, you've seen my uh, workbench trolley on, on train tracks? Yeah. Yeah, so I had welded up a steel frame for the top of that, and it's just got a, well, I think at the minute it's plywood, but it's usually got um, a vinyl sort of top on it that I can do glue-ups on. I right. find that the steel frame stays way flatter, especially in my workshop where right. the temperature variance will go from below freezing in winter to almost 50 degrees in summer. Mm. I reckon that any laminated top, no matter what timber you're using, is gonna bow. So you either need a substantial frame and clips that keep everything flat. If it were me, I would do a steel frame, probably about 25 to 30 mil steel frame and maybe a, either an MDF if you're trying to do a cheap top. I would put dog holes into it, I would inlay T-tracks into it so you can use it for assembly, you can clamp things down to it. Uh, if you wanted to go a little bit more premium, maybe like a bamboo um, plywood is a really nice flat finish, it's super hard. Like I, mm. I can, I'm completely with you, Joey. Dropping a hammer, or dropping a tool and putting a dent in a workbench is incredibly mm. frustrating. Um, but yeah, I reckon something like bamboo plywood, or yeah, if you want to go down a cheaper route, MDF with a wax finish on it, you drop glue on it, it yeah. comes off. That's that's what I would do personally. And then every mm. year, maybe you just have to replace your MDF top. Uh, mm. There's you can either sort of go the the Festool MFT table sort of layout, you know, where there's multiple doggles on it, and you can um, clamp a track to it, so you can use your track saw to get square cuts. Um, but there's a really good, I think they're based in Finland, um, and they have this templating jig that allows you to yeah. create super, I think they're called Taiga, T-A-I-G-A. And so, and you can just drill by with a hand drill, is that right? To make No, it, they use a router, but it's got a bushing oh, yeah. that's supplied, and you just that's sort of right. drop the router in and then step the jig along and route yep. again. And that's a really nice way of creating something in-house as opposed to having to outsource it to a CNC. You know, it's something that you could do in a, in a home workshop. But uh, yeah, for me, I just, I just don't really want to spend my time making a beautiful workbench. That's just me. I know there's other furniture makers out there that, you know, it is a real art form and they get a beautiful HNT Gordon yeah. vice on it. And so I, wanted, I wanted all that because I didn't have anything with a good vice on it. And mm-hmm. I said, well, if I'm going to build myself a big, heavy, bench which is what you want that's not going to rack around and i can throw my weight into planing on it i'll make myself the, mm-hmm. a heavy bench and I'm, i might as well go and put some good vices on it while i'm at it now that's not my everyday workbench that's my woodworking quote-unquote bench yeah. Mm, um, yeah yeah i use i, I made a, a torsion box 
top that's a full sheet of plywood size and that's like that gets abused I and mean, that's that's like I'd say 80% of the, my work is made on just a flat torsion box that mm -hmm. I, I can do whatever I need to do on it and I can turn around and my good bench is set up I can throw something in a clamp cut something do what I need to do but nine times out of ten I'm working over on the the kind of assembly table I guess what it is um, the downside to what, how I've made it is it's got a very light base it's just a couple of pieces of plywood as legs <laughs> and so it does move around when I'm really throwing my weight into it which is um, not ideal and I guess that question goes to you Robin like what do you want to do with your bench mm. do you want it to be an assembly table as well or do you want it to be kind of somewhere where you can put all your finer tools and then you know that you've got a little spot where you can you can go put something in the vise, you can cut your finer joinery and then you can take it to your other assembly area or do you want it to be all encapsulating coolness? <laughs> mm. I, think, I think I'm pretty much in a similar boat to what you've just explained <clears throat> where I've got two benches, one of them is a 1.8 meter by 900 assembly table on wheels which I do most of my work on. The problem is because it's on wheels, I just I get the feeling that you shouldn't be using that for chiseling. I mean, it, it works okay, but you've, you're always gonna have that bit of a flex where you really, A, you don't want the wheels which are slightly, yeah. there's always a bit of movement in them and you also don't have that solid connection from sort of yeah. the tip of your chisel through to the ground. So it's really going to be just for doing hand tool work. And that's kind of why I was thinking of going so small so that it doesn't mm. have a huge footprint in the shop because I'm only using it every now and then. Now, obviously if I'm trying to hand plane a 2.4 meter long board, maybe I am shooting myself in the foot, but that's why I thought around that one meter, 1.2 meter mark and with some good clamping pressure, 2.4, maybe even three meters, you should be able to get away with without yeah, any I can, real hassle. I can put a three meter board in my twin screw vise and, and extend it out a meter and a half each way and I can run a plane along it just fine. It's not going anywhere. Right, so it's got so that, you, they do yeah, have that you, much grip. Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, any, uh, any good vise should. The, the question then becomes, you know, if you start pressing too far away from the center of the bench, are you going to start lifting the other end up because you've got this <laughs> yeah. giant cantilever and, and it's just a matter of throwing some extra weights on the bottom of your bench, I suppose, but, or bolting it down. Yeah, I've got into the habit of storing all of my, like my render, my, my big paintings, any mortar in bags, that all sits in the bench that I'm using at the moment, yeah, right. it all sits on that shelf. So it's, it's crazy, crazy heavy. So my only Yeah, go for it. Sorry. My only complaint with my bench is that I would I would much rather have made it an extra meter longer. Yeah. Um, because I put this awesome um, tail vise on the top of my bench, but the longest I can get in there is uh, maybe 2.1 mm. um, because of the way the dog holes are and how much throw there is on the vise. I would much... So if, I, if I'm working, doing hand tool work only and I'm trying to plane a big long piece or especially if, when I was using the molding planes a lot I don't have the length to actually work on what I want mm. but for the, for the few times I want that it would be a pain in the ass to have such a giant bench and it would have made yeah. construction so much more expensive because of the multiples 
the lengths of, of timbers and getting multiples mm. out of it. I would have had terrible offcuts and it would have been pretty unaffordable. So there's, there's this giant way up between, you know, practicality and wants. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. If it, if it were me, I would go slightly longer than 1,200 if you, can, if you can afford it. Even if it's sort of 14 or 1,500, just that extra 200 mil to have space to put tools on or whatever. I, w I would just find that you'd be pretty limited by 1,200. Yeah, and I've got the space in the shop, so I, I can take advantage of that space. Mm -hmm. But because I've got a lot of tools on wheels, which I, I move around the shop mm -hmm. when I need to use them, so they sort of sit against the wall and come out, you know, any extra footprint that isn't mobile is now basically just a, a traffic hazard <laughs> for <laughs> everything else to move around. I would maybe build the top big and deal with it and see how it fits in your shop. And then if you want to trim that extra 300 mil off, you can do that as opposed to doing it the other way around. Just make sure your legs are yeah. sort of inset far enough to take a yeah. smaller bench. That's a really good idea, yeah. actually, yeah. Just have a nice mm. 200 mil overhang on either side and then... Yeah, that's kind of what I've got on, on all my benches anyway. I yeah, think that's, that's the idea. key to any bench is having, mm. like, on my assembly table, I've got, uh, on the ends, I've got, like, 600 mil overhang and around the sides, I've got almost the whole sheet overhang, and um, you need to be able to clamp the whole way around the table, I think. Um, and because all the time you might be clamping multiple pieces up on, a, on an assembly table, so you can use a jig or something and walk your way around multiple pieces that are clamped around the edge of your table. And you might yeah. have a kind of an assembly line type thing as you go work your way from point to point around your table. Sometimes that, that happens as well, and, and you just want to be able to fix it wherever you need it. And the easiest option is just an F clamp and clamp it straight to the table. Yeah. So, Joey, when you flattened your top, was it quite yeah. a process to do that? And have you done that again? No, I haven't touched it because my tabletop can't twist because it's stuck dovetail. in sliding dovetails, mm. which um, I, even if I say so myself, I think it was genius um, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't have to touch it. Um, it, it probably has moved. I'm sure it's moved, but it, it's nothing that, like, a table, a workbench does not need to be laser flat. So, um, yeah. even if you're, you're doing fine joinery, I don't believe it has to be laser flat. It needs to be within Kui, is about as flat as your piece of timber is, which is undoubtedly not dead flat either. Yeah, yeah. So, I've been looking at doing the the top like you see everyone do on YouTube, where it's the pine... Uh, you know, laminated because it yeah. just looks so cool. <laughs> it cool. looks yeah. amazing. But I don't want to go that pine route. I want to look for something else. So I want to try and find something a little bit harder, as you've said. I was going to ask you, what, what, what have you got that you think you might be using uh, that's available to you? So up, up the road at the, the timber yard, they've got something called Cooktown Ironwood. Brian, oh, yeah. have you heard Sounds about hard. it? <laughs> Sounds hard. Yeah. <laughs> Not only that, apparently it kills animals if they eat the, the foliage off it. So a lot of people have respiratory reactions to it when they're cutting it. So nice. you know, it might be a lot of fun. So I might go for something like that. But my, what I can't wrap my head around is the way the guys mortise legs into yeah. that top. Yeah. Now I get it, they're, they're aligning the grain so that the, the, the expansion is you know, up and down instead of left and right. But surely, you, surely that, that, that width is going to want to move lengthways or widthways. 
Well, well, I think what you find most of the time on those benches, that's a, it's a in the split top Roubaix style, and so that you actually you have a gap between your two table your bench tops. You, mm. you might have two like three hundred mil wide planks that are your bench yeah. top with like a fifty mil gap. And I think the the way I haven't actually built one of these, so I, I can't think off the top of my head. But I believe that it's like two separate kind of structures, and so they're not going to move enough independently to start forcing the legs apart, which are joined down at the bottom. Yeah, they do. They do make them though solid tops. Um, oh, Jay, yeah? Jay Bates has one, and he's. Um, I've seen a lot of people do it similar to that. Okay. And yeah, it's just a solid top with those, you know, those really tight bolts yeah. going. Well, if through. it's quarter sawn timber and it's on its edge. Sorry, if it's quarter sawn, if it's on its edge, so you need flat sawn timber and put it on its edge. Mm. Um, in theory, it's not going to move all that much, but I don't know. I've never even I haven't thought about making a bench in that way, so uh, I need to give it some thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because maybe then that that split top is the way to go, because then it's just not even a an issue. And as you say, I, because you don't <laughs> need a flat surface, then yeah. I hate the idea of a split top. Like to me, it's like the worst thing mm. ever invented. Like, why do you want to put a hole in your bench top? The first thing that you're going to do is lose everything that can fit down it. <laughs> like, I, I would just constantly be losing everything. Uh, uh, I'm just not that way inclined to be gentle enough with my tools to like make sure they don't go down the, the hole in the middle of my bench top. Like, every chisel would be down there. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's another thing you can look at is putting in the tool well. Yeah which some people seem to think is all that. I reckon it's a really easy way to get your tools covered in glue and dust and muck, yeah. personally. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the, the thing most people want out of anything, you talk to any woodworker or maker for that matter, they just want somewhere to work that's nice and flat and there's nothing else around. Yeah. And um, as soon as you start putting weird details in your work surface, it limits how much space you've got. Yeah. Straight away, even even putting drawers in, you then can't yeah. clamp to that that side of your workbench because you're clamping on yeah. the drawer rather than table. So yeah, yeah. I would yeah. I would go as much utilitarian sort of yeah. <laughs> go that way as possible. Yeah. But I agree. I think you need to go for something like decent, solid, like mm -hmm. 60, 70, 100 mil thick, something that is not going to flex and and give yourself a good kind of grounding. Mm. But what that is. I don't know. <laughs> I actually looked at, at Merbau decking just because I've yeah. worked with that in the past. It's really easy to work with. It's pretty stable. But they cut it so that it's, um, so the, the grain is the wrong orientation. So as soon as you flip it on your side, you're now, um, oh, yeah. you've now so got it. So it's quarter sawn already, is it? The, a lot of the stuff seems to be. Um, I mean, okay. it might not all be. It's just a couple of boards that I've looked at. But a lot of it is. And I guess that would make sense from a, decking perspective because you'd you'd want it course yeah. on yeah and um so i might look at that just because i think i think that'd be a, a pretty interesting a pretty interesting um uh, looking uh, bench and because that mobile quiller is so dense mm. hopefully it'll be a nice surface to work on well you could go down as you could go down a plywood road and laminate up a solid plywood bench and then on the front face, you could laminate on some hardwood because um, the plywood's not going to take abuse, especially if you were going to put a, um, a vise on it. You can have a, a nice hardwood 
kind of front cheek uh, that is, mm. takes all the abuse and you work on, and then you have like a edge grain laminated plywood solid block. Hmm, that's interesting. And that would be quite well. I imagine it would be more affordable. Yeah, yeah, I could look at that actually. It's not a bad idea. And in terms of of uh, hardware, Brian, are you particular with like? Do you use one of your devices more than the other? Nope. I just got a couple of. I've got a, an old. Uh, is it Irwin? Oh, no, I can't remember what it was. It's like a nineteen forties <laughs> vice I bought off eBay for about twenty five bucks. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, like I said. I'm not precious with, you know, like, a vice to me is just something to clamp onto. Like, it, it doesn't really but, but bother do me. You, do you have the, the leg vice and the face vice and the nope. tail vice? Just nope. a Nope. Nope. Just the bog standard nope. yep. face vice. Yep. You can, you can make a leg vice very easily as well. Yeah. Like, they're so simple. The idea of a leg vice, my first one, I just cut up an old sash cramp. And use the, the mechanism oh, yeah. from a sash cramp, and and then I just put a, a pin at the bottom, and that was my my leg vice. And I used it for in my first workshop, probably for two years. So. Um, and and the leg versus the face, I think it's called a face vice, is the right term. The the difference yeah. between the two, I mean, is, is do you prefer the one over the other? Uh, to be honest, I didn't see all the fuss around a leg vice. Like after I made it, I was like, yeah, it does the job. It's very simple to make. There's a lot of fussing around where you can just buy like a, an undermounted version for like 150, 200 bucks. You can get a, a pretty good, solid, brand new vice that bolts on to the bottom mm. of a decent thickness bench top, and you have yourself a, a front vice. Um, like Irwin still make them, I think, and they've got a dog on the front jaw as well, pop up dog. So then yep. you can use it as a tail vice uh, yeah. working away from yourself. I would, um, I would use that a lot more. I've got um, I've got dogs on my vice, and I would use it yeah. to clamp onto a tabletop yeah. as opposed to clamping something vertically. Um, yeah, on a vice is how I would usually work, Robin. Mm. Okay, yeah, that seems like a really good a good um, middle ground because when whenever you with all the research I've done, whenever you watch these videos, people put in a, t a leg vice and it is the best thing and they could never go back to something else and then someone puts in a face vice and they cannot understand why leg vice is so stupid you know there's it seems like there's re it's really polarized you're either in this camp or the other camp but because people spent money on that stuff and then now they're invested yeah. on it <laughs> yeah i can't see the, the massive benefit in in the leg vice i appreciate it, as you said simple to make very yeah. fiddly with the the wedge down at the bottom like jay bates does it but yeah. the the face vice is yeah, it just seems so much more straightforward. I love my twin screw vise because it's got two screws and that part between the two is like maximum kind of squishing pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and if I'm, it's mainly when I'm doing, um, making drawers and doing hand cut dovetails on drawers, it, those pieces just fit perfectly between the screws mm. and it's like half a turn, bam, it's popped in there, I can do the cut half a turn, take it out, turn it over, and it's really nice. I like that. My experience with other vices is that they can rack, um, and I've got a couple of other cheaper vices, front vices from Carbotech, and mm. as soon as you start clamping some pressure onto it, the, the whole jaw starts racking, and um, you get dents in your work, and it's just a pain in the ass. Yeah, that's interesting. So my advice is to spend a bit more on a vice. Yeah, <laughs> that's good advice. <laughs> yeah. oh, your your vices, Joey, are they uh, quick release or not? 
I, I've had one in the past, and when I grew up, my dad had a quick release, and I loved it. And I, and I couldn't find, never been able to find the same thing. Um, right, okay. But yeah, I would, I would love a quick release um, under mount, steel yeah. front with wooden um, jaws, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yep. um, so that'd, be, that'd be really nice. All right, so I, I guess we'll leave the, the workbench there then. Um, I'm probably going to be looking into this over the next couple of weeks. I really want to spend a bit of time on it and, and, and make sure I make the right thing. Um, but I guess, Brian, I've got to keep in mind what you're saying, that it is just a workbench, so don't be, don't be too precious about it. In two years' time, it will not look anything like it does when you finish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So earlier this week, there was a bit of a, um, and I guess this is a bit of a YouTube news um, segment. There was a, a bit of a controversy going on online between two makers, and, and I'm not going to put names in because if you know the story, you know who they are. But I think what's really interesting is what the the confront- confrontation between the two of them was all about. So, in Camp A, we have someone who's released a video with a uh, a workbench. And this is where it all came about when I was researching workbenches. It was a specific style of workbench that someone many years ago sold plans for. And it was a specific style. This person sold plans and just recently this, this, this maker has, has made this bench and released free plans to his workbench. And he hasn't necessarily credited that original, that original bench designer properly. At the time he didn't anyway. At the time he didn't, correct, yeah. <clears throat> then second maker comes along, leaves a comment on the video and basically calls him out and says, look, A, that original designer is, is getting no props for this, let alone any, any income from his plans that he sells on his website. You've just completely undercut him and you, you haven't even mentioned him properly so, so people would be interested in the original design. Turned into a big hoo-ha, kind of blew up. Both parties have come together and sorted things out, reconciled, which is, which is cool. It's great because I think the whole drama industry is, <laughs> while it, it, it brings in eyeballs, it's for the, the wrong reason. Now, the reason I'm, I'm interested in this is last week, well, in the, in the last show, we were talking, um, if, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but we were talking about in the architectural industry, Brian, you were saying plagiarism is a big issue. And we were also talking about using other people's designs when we build. So I guess it's just interesting to think about where copying stops and where influence starts. And in particular, when you are putting out content, when I'm putting out videos, I am terrified of stealing other people's work. So do you, when you use someone else's idea, whether it be on YouTube, um, when you're making a table on, and putting it on Instagram, do you need to credit someone every time? Joey, go. Uh, the couple of times I have straight up stolen someone's idea, I just said this is this person's idea and I'm having a go because I really like it. Um, I think we're always influenced by things we see and sometimes, and it happened to me, I had the exact same idea as someone on the other side of the planet, no idea they existed, and we designed the exact same thing, and I got um, called out for that, and I said, that was my fault, 
I just never heard of you. Um, mm. And that just happens. But so from that point of view, I think there's absolutely a chance that one, two, or ten people could invent exactly the same thing and all release their videos on the same day and everyone would go, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think it's possible. Um, and there's also definitely people who are just stealing other people's ideas to make money off it. And that, I think, is the intent is the problem. I think if you're a maker who's experimenting with making furniture and wanting to try out other shapes and forms... I don't think, don't see any problem, and I, would, me personally, would take that as a compliment. Until they start doing it for, with the intent of making money from that design without putting any thought into it themselves, um, and at that point, I would start saying, "Well, you're making lots of money from my design." <laughs> so, even if the they credited is, it properly, then it's oh, okay. well, are you saying well, then it's okay? I don't know. It, it's a, there, there's a whole different area if it turns into a business for someone. Um, it's at the same in the same breath I might not have been the first person to invent it anyway so mm. like all design I think has been designed to a certain degree and it's a matter of which part we're talking about and how it's put together um, Brian probably has different ideas there but yeah I don't know it's there are so many facets to this conversation there's yeah. like the YouTube scene that I'm not necessarily as involved in yeah. as you guys um, and the crediting of work where I think a lot of it is just repeating what other people have done anyway in, in terms of a workbench build or something you might be taking different bits of inspiration from different makers you probably should yeah. be crediting people um, but then I think if you're giving away the plants for free and you're not making money out of it. It's very hard to say. But <laughs> the side of things that I would be more concerned of is um, intellectual protection. Like the kind of in Australia, we have none. Like we have Jack. So at the minute, there is a, uh, a not for profit called the Australian Design Alliance who are trying to lobby state government to, in fact, sorry, federal government to offer copyright protections to furniture makers the same that would apply to mm. artists because does that not apply no oh, like, i was going to say could you what, also just elaborate on what that what that is what is intellectual property intellectual property is when you design like when you write a piece of music you know the the main example is you know the verve bittersweet symphony mm, um yeah. richard ashcroft received i think less than a thousand pounds and the rolling stones got X many <laughs> tens of millions uh, for a sample that he didn't credit properly mm. and like that's a pretty painful experience for somebody to go through where it's a, such a small sample but by not paying the rights up front where he maybe could have got it for 15-20% royalties he's mm. lost everything and he has <laughs> to keep singing that song and keep losing money on it whereas <laughs> furniture makers in Australia um, it happens so many times now uh, there was an incident, I think, last year in Melbourne where a maker had made... There was a fairly basic tile rack, but there was an element to the design that was unique. And um, Aldi Supermarket used it to style a shoot of tiles <laughs> for a catalogue. And then the next year's catalogue, they're selling tile rails, which are identical to her tile rails. Whoa. So they used it as in they purchased the, the, the product they, from They this, would have purchased this. one. It would have been a stylist resourcing yeah. 
doing the research, resourcing, <coughs> purchasing one, use it for the shoot, and then that photo has gone to Aldi headquarters, and, and they've obviously had it quoted by a factory in um, Far East Asia, I would assume, and they're that's, just knocking them off next year. And it happens all the time. It happens. That's with, what I was talking about. With you know, as soon as it turns from someone just ripping yeah. you off and turning your idea into a business of their own outright, yep. Or even with all due credit, that's not being um, compensated for your design. That's mm. just mm. them. That's it's a cop out saying, "Oh yeah, this was designed by this person." Unless they're getting paid for that, and that company Aldi is going to make. But how many did they make? Twenty thousand of them probably. Yep. And the and they're, they're making big money on that. Yeah. Um, that's the point where that is straight up theft. Yeah. Like the versions that I've gone through, I, I think I've spoken about it before, um, maybe when I was a guest on your show, was I had um, basically my entire brand knocked off by a business in India. That's right. So there was a trade show and an Australian architect was in Delhi at the time, went along to the trade show, had been following me on Instagram, saw my stuff and he's like, oh, brilliant, saw this beer over here. <laughs> and then... He noticed that I wasn't there and it wasn't my stuff and it was just, it had knocked off three pieces of my stuff. My sketches were blown up on the walls. My brand was there and it was just masquerading as me. And that's one way. And that's obviously fairly cut Sorry, and dry. Your, your actual brand, they didn't, they yeah, didn't yeah. create a new, nah. it was just Sawdust Bureau India. Yep. Wow. And, yeah, my hand is, is so photographs of my hand sketching, you know, the pinch bench are up on the wall and, and on their Instagram account. So, um, so that's one side of the copying debate, which is cut and dry. You know, they're a commercial mm. company. They've just gone online, seen images, knocked them off, and they're making a profit out of it. The other side would be I get contacted quite often by... Um, by students, sort of year 11, year 12 students doing woodworking projects. They'll see stuff on my website and they'll want to send stuff to me to show me that they've built a project that is similar to mine, mm. which is great. You know, They're not trying to make money out of it. They've used you as a start point, like a springboard, yep. and mm. they've added their own things to it. And that is totally fine. I have no issue with that whatsoever. Yeah. The but thing you that I was- encourage. Yeah. You can encourage the young people by allowing them to even just straight up copying. Like if, yeah, if, yeah. A, if, if a school kid came to me and said, I want to copy the table you just made, I'd say, You're go honest. for it. Yeah, go for and it. And here's, here's uh, maybe some advice, which I did some stuff wrong, and maybe here's uh, how to do it better. Yep. See, if you can, see if you can do it better than me. Go for yep. it. Um, but what I was talking about last week, about me being called out on plagiarism, um, so I have done a series of pieces using brass dot inlay right. um, and I had seen the technique done on YouTube and it was an old video it was like a I don't know probably three or four years into YouTube so it was poorly filmed right. it was I think how to make a, a birthday sign or something like that inlaid into <laughs> right. a bit of burl timber and all these dots yep. spelling out a name or a number or something like that and I was like oh, that's quite a good idea so I took the technique and I put it into a, um, a piece that I did with an indigenous artist, putting dot work, their yeah. dot art, into a tabletop in different sizes of brass rod. And it was a dream time story about the stars. The artist's agent then commissioned me to do a piece for a boardroom table with an actual star map. 
Mm-hmm. So he wow. wanted to storm up over this huge boardroom table, and I was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. That's awesome. Yeah. So I did that, and then I got approached for, to do a piece for um, Studio Review Furniture last year. And I was thinking, moon landing, 50th anniversary is coming up. And I wanted to sort of look at Australia's involvement with that. So it was all to do with Parks being the broadcasting. I'm sure you guys have seen the movie The Dish. Yeah. So rather than just doing a generic star map, I did a historical and geographical trace of the star map to what it looked like at Parks the moment man landed on the moon. Yeah, oh, that's cool. And the second that Wood Review were the main sponsors of the article, the second that that photo appeared on Instagram, somebody commented, and it's a maker in America that does star map tables. Uh-huh. And this is pretty much the bulk of his work is brass inlay tables, whereas for me, I have <laughs> three pieces that are brass inlay tables. And it was a direct call out of plagiarism. And I was like, my table looks absolutely nothing like his whatsoever. Mm. Like Just the design technique. of it, it's a technique. Mm. It's like saying, you know, if you're doing shushugu ban, yeah. like would well, the first person that realised that you'd burn timber, the first person that did dovetails, the first person that did spleen exactly. joints, like yeah. I think it is perfectly fine to take elements of that and put it into your design, so long as your design is different. That to me mm. is not plagiarism. Absolutely. Yeah, when, when I make a a, a squeeze bench which is slightly, you know, shorter than yours and maybe a little more stout, and I call it a squeeze bench. (laughs) And um, (laughs) then then that's too far. But as you say, like, who was the first person to do a river table? Yeah, totally. Well, that's another argument. I think he... Well, that that uh, fellow, whatever his name is. I think he registered the um, the patent. Yeah, and nobody else could call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, you so can't call it river, call it table, river table. table. People are calling them, uh, what, canyon tables and all sorts of things, <laughs> creek tables and whatever you want to call it. Anything yeah. anything that can be done to put people off creating a river table is great in my book, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can't call it a river table, and that's awesome. Too yeah. much epoxy. All right, this is, we, we talked about this um, last season with, with Jordan, because I remember he put out a... Um, a, a video with the design of a table and then me, I think it was many years later another very popular YouTube, YouTuber put out a new video of a similar style and then all of a sudden Jordan on his original video started getting called out <laughs> that, this new, that he had copied this new even though the videos were two years apart yeah. Um, yeah. he kept getting these comments about being copying it so yeah. Uh, and, and you can't that, do and, anything about that. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and and that's where the, particularly in the YouTube world, the crediting becomes very grey because, I guess, as you say, Brian, there's no, we don't have any, real, cut and dry, black and white. This is what, copying is, and this is what isn't. But I find it really hard, to swallow the idea that I need to credit someone, if I put out a video, of something that I've made on YouTube. From a, obviously from an ethical perspective, I will do it because I think ethically that's right. But there's no, there's no legal or actual ramifications if I just steal someone's design and put out a video of how I made it. You know, I'm not going to get a knock on the door and someone's going to come tell me I need a pay up. That it just doesn't happen in the YouTube world. I think it depends. It depends a bit on your intent. Again, I was mm. just thinking about. See, I could make 
uh, one of Brian's pinch benches. And I think it would be interesting for me to try and make his bench and, and make it in a completely different way, but end up with a similar result. Mm. Yep. And that, that would just be a fun exercise, I think. And I think most woodworkers would probably go, oh, look, this is a pretty cool thing. This guy is trying to uh, copy, and but make it in a different way. And just from a technical woodworking point of view, you would mm. say it would be an interesting kind of process to, to say, how would I go about this in a different way, get the same result? Cool thing. Now, but if I made that video and didn't elaborate on the fact that I was making it differently, I just made the video and said, look, I've copied it and I'm going to call it Squeeze Bench, um, then Brian has got a good cause to, to jump up and down a bit and, and say, hey, you just stole my idea. But, um, you know, I think there's, there's different intents. Mm. If your intent is bad, then it's bad. If your intent is good, then it's probably good. But is it your responsibility to credit that? Because, as we've seen, you might be creating something that someone's already created. And then you've accidentally copied someone. So well, then you no, like I don't, I don't, I don't buy the fact that say, in my case, was a, a little glass coffee table, and the guy who had, and I had never seen it, never heard of this guy, and I came up with the same design in a different way, but it ended up with exactly the same design. Now he had had his out for at least a year before me. It doesn't mean that he was the first. He mm. was, it was just different, and so I don't have to credit him because I didn't, I didn't know about it. Mm. Um, uh, and I didn't push the subject, I just explained in my video that I never heard from you and, and here's how I got to that design. It's quite a different way um, from the way he got to his design. And it's just yeah. a different way, I thought it was interesting that we got to the same thing in different ways, just like I was talking about before. Um, so I don't think in that sense, if, if you're completely ignorant about the, the other one existing, there's, there can be no, um, I, I can't see how anyone can have an issue with that. The mm. two people themselves may want to have discussion about about it. I'm not sure, but to the rest of the world, I don't think it, they've got an opinion. <laughs> yeah. I put out a, a, a video probably about a year ago where I inset a wireless charger into a bedside <laughs> table. Right? Uh, you probably remember that one, Joe. Yeah. And it, it worked well. It was a, a really cool idea. Blew up on internet, on, on, on uh, Reddit, did averagely on, on YouTube. Um, months, probably a couple weeks to a month later, everyone, all the big guys, yeah. suddenly started doing wireless charges. Yeah. And I, it's, it's only, I've only ever done this, it's only ever happened to me once where I've actually, I feel like I was the, the one that set that trend in motion yeah. because it did so well on Reddit. All of those guys would have seen it from my video. By no means was I the first because there were more before me, but I do feel like, and, and obviously I'm, I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that my video was the one that got those guys doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I would not feel right jumping up and down and complaining about that to, you know, at them or to them because they got the idea from me and, and there was zero crediting. No one, no one like, even said we got the idea from a fellow YouTuber. No one said anything. Yeah. <clears throat> in, that se in that situation, I don't feel like I've got any grounds. And I, I'd, I'd feel like an asshole if I suddenly went, uh, 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 actually, you can't, you know, you got to mention, yeah. It's uh, interesting. That's, that one particularly is a little bit interesting because it starts to get into 
Like, because I know IKEA picked it up and they have incorporated it into their bedside tables or some versions of bedside tables. And so at some point it goes from like someone's kind of bright idea, but it, it becomes like in, almost into public realm, like it's mm. just normal. Like it's just the same as discussing which kind of joinery, like you can't patent dovetail joinery because it's just mm-hmm. accepted that it's a thing and everyone uses it, like the Egyptians used it. So at some point, technology is going to be incorporated into furniture and then you did it and it popped up into a bunch of people's faces who gave them ideas and probably people were already thinking about doing it anyway, somehow mm. incorporating you know, technology into uh, furniture and it's just something that just suddenly happened and I don't think you could probably ever pinpoint the first anyway mm, mm. it's definitely an, it's an unusual it's it's an unusual thing in furniture design um because other industries you would have some level of protection um mm. but yeah we don't currently have it in in architecture the issue that i had was the firm that i was working for did a um a residential house that was one of the director's houses beautiful house and uh it was called kensington lighthouse so it sort of it didn't look like a lighthouse, but it was sort of metaphorically like a lighthouse. Light. It was taller than the buildings around it. It had um, right. damp along, which is sort of a semi-translucent cladding in the front. So it sort of cool. lit up at night and it looked like a beacon. And it was posted on D-Zine, which for a small architecture firm in Australia was a great way to get publicity. Instantly, somebody went on and called it out. They said, <laughs> no. This, is, this has been done before. This has been done in England. And it was another project called Lighthouse, which was oh. of a similar shape, similar oh. form. Um, and then uh, the designers of that and everybody started going on design and just hammering the company that I worked for. Wow. So then we had to go back and try to trace the history of their design and the history of our design, just as a level of defense. Like we weren't calling yeah. them out. But as a level yeah. of defense, and we had submitted ours for planning a year before their design was made public. <laughs> so it's like you can come up with fairly similar ideas on the other side of the world, yeah. but just be very, very careful about calling people out on it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems odd. Yeah, that's a good point, because, yeah, you might end up being the one with the egg on your face. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, in, in terms of the 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 original the kerfuffle between these two makers is they've come together and, and you know, I think they've sorted things out which is which is really awesome but I, th- I think this is going to because it was between two such high, high profile makers this is really going to change the way crediting is done on YouTube videos going forward people are going to be a little bit more mindful and maybe cautious going forward because this has caused such a stink yeah probably yeah all right, so we're coming we're coming up to time, but before we do that, Joey, you've had another interesting client pop up. <laughs> well, I had a week. couple of I had a couple of issues. I, I emailed you guys earlier about how terrible of a week I was having. Yeah. Um, so last episode, we talked briefly about knock-on effects and how that can affect us yeah. um, getting paid and and just the whole job. Uh, and so. What happened was uh, the my last video was the the um, uh, Remu vanities, veneered vanities that sitting on some steel brackets in a in a bathroom. Yep. Now I for that same house I actually made two smaller ones, and they were downstairs in a little just a little toilet room, so only about a meter wide. 
Um, so originally that room was going to be tiled and so I had made my um, two remove slabs um, just just big enough that I would need to trim them a bit once the tiles went in just so because who knows how thick the tiles will be and all the rest now I should explain that these re, these vanities were sitting in a, in a three-sided alcove so it, it, I, they had to sit between two walls mm-hmm. um, so I started called the uh, owner at some point and said how are we going are the tiles in and she said oh no there's no tiles we're putting wallpaper in there and I said, um, well, that's not, that, that wasn't the plan. And she goes, no, 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 that's always been the plan. It's never going to be tiles. It's always going to be wallpaper. And I said, okay, I'm pretty sure that's not the truth, but um, in which case I'm going to have to check your vanities may be too short because I wouldn't have allowed to go uh, make them long enough to go all the way to the jib board. I've allowed like 20 mil shorter mm. um, to go between the tiles and with a little Tiling. bit of trimming and she and just went dead silent on me at that point um so what what ended up happening was through a series she didn't talk to me i had to talk to the builder she wouldn't talk to him even half the time um what happened was the wallpaper went on i got a final measurement and it turned out that the length i had trimmed them was just acceptable like there was going to be a gap but we could fill it with some black silicon, which we were going to have to silicon these on anyway. So the, the vanities were slightly short, but within the tolerance just that we could kind of fudge it. Um, the problem is that she went and put wallpaper on the walls and she wanted black silicon. So it had to mask off the, the wallpaper and on my vanities. What color was the, the, the wallpaper? like a dark gray and silver with like a like a pattern and like a um, embossed pattern on it she, so it was like really complex just change the, the silicon to match the the wall or did she well, want the black it, no it had to be black it couldn't be any other color like i mean if it was white it would look terrible um so it was the problem is that masking onto wallpaper is not a cool idea especially brand oh, new wallpaper yeah, yeah um, okay. so i was like kind of you know stuck between a rock and a hard place do i put the masking tape on the the um wallpaper or what do you do so i said right i'm going to have to do it otherwise it's going to be a terrible messy line of silicon anyway did it the last 20 mils of masking tape pulled off a 20 mil piece of wallpaper oh oh so, no like i couldn't believe it i got all the way around this meter and plus the the width of it and this brand new house just about finished and there's this big blurring white chunk of you know so, uh, you couldn't ask for and and like this is just a direct knock-on result of the client changing her mind and lying about it and Jeez. putting wallpaper and if, if someone had told me they were putting wallpaper against a vanity i would have said Are you, really you're asking for trouble like it's yeah, not, check it's it not out. you're gonna have to put a, a row of tiles or something mm. there because you're gonna get water damage straight away anyway um so then she went silent on me i told the builder i said look this has happened i think it can be patched because of where it was you could probably fix this up but you know it's part of the course you know, what am i meant to do and then he was like oh you know that sucks for you but thank god you've told me because we were gonna have to do some 
touch-up painting on the skirting, and I wondered if we should mask the the um, <laughs> wallpaper off. And then he's saying, "No, I won't do that. I'll come up with another solution." Um, <laughs> and um, so uh, the end result was that she said, "I'm not paying you because we have to." She's not going to pay me the final invoice because we have to fix up the the, um, the wallpaper. She was talking about re-wallpapering a whole room, and. Um, I just she just sent me the bill for the wallpapering, which was actually only a hundred bucks. He somehow I don't know how he managed to replace the whole oh, piece. Wow. I think what he did is cut the wallpaper along the silicon line, and then just put a new piece on. And so the silicon is now not doing anything. But um, is what it is. That's his problem. <laughs> and so she's deducting that money from uh, the final invoice, and I imagine she should be paying me right now um so that's that was one of them and i was just like so the whole thing i was just like this is so stupid like this is not my fault it shouldn't be my fault to have to deal with the fact that i have to suddenly come up with a a plan to to work out how to seal this vanity onto paper and do a nice clean job like i would not have been okay with this if i had known and um yeah, interesting, an interesting thing. So the the net result of all this, plus this whole other issue, which I won't get into because it's about twenty minute story, but the end result was I had to deal with my lawyers with a client because um, oh wow, wifey, the wife was happy with all the work we did. Three weeks later, husband was completely furious at me for the work we did, and. Um, so I went to my lawyer. He said, no, you're legally, you have a legal right to assume that the wife can make decisions and she'd made mm. decisions on what we did. And so, you know, if he wants to take you to court, he can take you to court for it. I asked, I'm expecting him to do that. I will see what happens. Um, oh, jeez. And anyway, the up result, the upside of all that is that I've gone and got, I've drawn up now, instead of having like one line of terms and conditions, I now have like, this many <laughs> terms and conditions, uh, which is a full page and showing the guys. Um, and so the biggest problem with getting people to sign quotes is getting them to actually sign it. You know, they've got to print it out, sign it, scan it, find a file or whatever, and get it back to you. And it's a pain in the ass. Like we've all had to do it. And so I actually found an Australian company called DocuSign. Yep. Yep. And do you guys know about them? Yeah. Like, yep. It's the best thing since sliced bread. So now everything is going through these guys. And what it is is uh, I can drag on my PDF quote uh, onto their software. I can add some check marks. I can add a box where they need to push a signature and they can uh, okay different variations or whatever. Yeah. It gets emailed to the client and they push the button saying they accept, digitally sign it, and it comes straight back to me. And it's like two or three clicks, and they've signed a, a contract, and it makes mm. life so much easier. So um, that is now my new favorite uh, thing to <laughs> save my butt. <laughs> Do they charge a fee uh, to use? Yeah, the for their lowest, their lowest package is um, twenty-five a month, twenty-five Australian a month. No, oh, that's not too bad. Which is not too bad, and that gives you five quotes or five documents a month, mm. um, and that's enough for me at this stage. So. Um, I think that will make life a lot easier. I've just got into the... Oh, I don't think I told you guys. The the build upstairs is going ahead. We've locked it in for the 2nd of December. So, oh, cool. Yeah, that's all underway. Engineers signed off. 
the the whole quoting process yeah. has been done electronically. The the, yeah. the builder basically sent me a document to, to electronically sign to say that I'm okay with electronic signatures. Okay, right. and then it <laughs> takes you to this to this like portal <laughs> that it's got all of your different individual payments when they're going to be. Blah, blah, and then that's it. Everything comes through email. You sign everything yeah. electronically. Yeah, and that's the only a, way, man. Not a single piece of paper has been used. It's amazing. Yeah. What? Because uh, I couldn't believe how simple it was when I found it. This is the, like my dream piece of software. And um, yeah, it's going to save a lot of hassle. Because what it means is every time one of my clauses in my new terms are that every change that the client makes will now be written on. I would send them a new quote. Uh, um, and cross out the old whatever it was right in the new thing and they just have to click on the approval button yeah and everyone knows that that's what's happening um makes life super easy yeah i'm sick of i'm sick of people just lying to me and it's just not cool so yeah yeah well maybe next week we'll get into the the full length of that story because i'm quite interested yeah. here because <laughs> it sounds like it got a bit heated but we, we'll leave it there yeah. for today so to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. Um, the Shop Store podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps, as well as YouTube. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks very much for hanging out today. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you in the next show. See you, everyone. See you, bye.